as long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Potomy app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710KURV and KURV.com. Here's Davis. Uh, our guest is uh, Roseanne Bacha Garza. She is with the CHAPS program at UTRGV, CHAPS's Community Historical Archaeology Project with Schools. And uh, they, they other well, I don't know what they do other than uh, Civil War type stuff, Civil War history done here on the border. Because, you know, we, we're so far away, we think, eh, other than that little battle on the east side of the valley, nothing much happened. But uh, I think, uh, uh, Rose, I'm going to just call you Roseanne. But um, I always thought, as I told you, I always thought we didn't have anything to do with down here with slavery, slave, enslaved people, uh, certainly not with Juneteenth. When can, can I pause you for a second? And can we just start with, uh, no, can we just start with why Juneteenth is a thing and why it's let, called Juneteenth? Or were you getting into that? I was going to let her do that. She said she would do that. Well, go ahead. Ask her. <laughs> hi, hi, Rose, hi, Roseanne. Why is Juneteenth Juneteenth? Hi, everybody. Hi. I was just letting Davis go on. That's you know? <laughs> not a good idea, I guess. Go. Yeah, yeah go. we know him a little bit better. I apologize. Oh, that's all right. Thank you for asking me yes, to ma'am. be with you today. And uh, so we are uh, here in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas um, observing and celebrating the Juneteenth holiday. Um, it is a holiday that has been recognized by the state of Texas. Uh, since the 1980s, only recently uh, recognized as a federal holiday by President Biden in 2021, thanks to the uh, grassroots efforts of Ms. Opal Lee of um, Dallas, Texas. Um, but Juneteenth is a combination of two words, June and 19th, because on June 19th, 1865, that is when uh, U.S. uh, General Gordon Granger and his troops entered into Galveston, Texas to read General Order Number 3 to proclaim in the state of Texas uh, and otherwise that slaves were now free. Um, And in the state of Texas, the slaves did not quite um, know this. It wasn't... uh, uh, common knowledge among them because the slave Texas owners didn't tell them. A, well, no. Of hey, hey, y'all, not. gather, um, come close, come close. Hold, I have a secret. Hold on, hold on. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. Um, there, you know, Texas was a slave state as of February of 1861, and uh, once the U.S. Civil War was over with the um, the surrender of General Lee. To General Grant at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th, 1865. Even after that, um, the folks in Texas were not overwhelmingly informed that they were wow. free. So when uh, General Granger came into Galveston and made this um, declaration through General Order Number Three, then everybody knew. And so this was uh, the beginning of the Juneteenth observations uh, here in Texas, and uh, they started um, observing this the very next year and continued on until this day. Yeah, we had to take people back because it's not like we had TV and Internet back then and the news was everywhere. I'm, I'm sure select people were privy to the select the daily people. ongoings of the rest of the country, right? It just To me, that shows the belligerence and the truculence, rather, of, of white people or slave owners anyway. They knew the gig, the, 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 the game was up, but they wouldn't. And am I to, am I to assume, because I don't know this as well as you do, uh, but 
is is it is it to be assumed that they were kind of holding out to see what the outcome of the war was going to be? Yes, I believe that to be the case. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, the uh, free labor that they were getting from slaves uh, or enslaved peoples in in Texas was contributing to their bottom line. So when we when we read General Order Number Three and one of the sentences says that, um, well, I'll just read it if you don't sure, mind. Go ahead. It's only a few sentences long. Uh, the people are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection heretofore existing between them become that between employer and hired labor. The freed are advised to remain at their present home and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. So basically what that is saying, and there are many scholars out there who uh, do not want to oversimplify this. They want to know, they want people to know the the very um, heavy handedness of this in the sense that slaves or, or enslaved peoples were uh, it was announced to them that they are now free but in this general order number three it instructs them to stay where they are and work for wages Hmm. and then it further tells them that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere so this is a declaration or a proclamation uh, general order number three that you know clearly comes with conditions uh, but yet a lot of the focus when people think about juneteenth is the fact that you know those in texas were not informed of this uh, expeditiously it was let's wait till the last possible moment because we need these people these able able bodied people to provide that free labor um, uh, for as long as we can possibly get it. So, um, so hmm. yes, yep. I hope that answered your question. That's yeah. Roseanne Bacha-Garza. She's with the CHAPS program at UTRGV, and they're doing work on, how would I put it, that you're doing work on the history of, of black people or uh, enslaved people who... Well, one of our um, initiatives at the CHAPS program at UTRGV is the Rio Grande Valley Civil War Trail Project. That's it. And that project um, um, in, encompasses um, uh, informing the, re- the residents of the Rio Grande Valley just how rich the culture is and in terms of what happened during the U.S. Civil War uh, and before and, and after, for that matter. Uh, and one of the portions of the trail has to do with... Um, describing exactly where U.S. colored troops served. So when they were emancipated by uh, President Lincoln in the North, uh, many of them mustered in to the U.S. Army and served uh, in in various regiments here in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas uh, later on in the in the U.S. Civil War, let's say uh, 1870, I'm sorry, 1864, uh, then the uh, wars over in uh, April of 1865, but they were charged to remain behind to uh, patrol and protect the border, as well as to behave as a army of occupation oh, to wow. rebuild the forts along the river. So these former, formerly enslaved uh, men were here and... Uh, we uh, we did a short nine-minute uh, documentary film uh, titled A Letter from Roma that 
mm. highlights a letter sent back to Kentucky from a sergeant, uh, Sergeant Major Thomas Boswell of the 116th U.S. Color Troops, who were stationed out here in Roma near um, what we know today as Los Negritos Creek <laughs> in a segregated camp. Hmm. So um, mm-hmm. this is uh, part of the fabric of our history here. And the letter that he wrote home describes life in Roma and basically um, that they were getting along with the locals uh, in enough of a sense where he specifically says, soon we will all be speaking Spanish. Um, <laughs> but he was, con- but no, he was concerned. Go ahead. Yeah, but he was concerned in the letter he wrote back home to Kentucky that while other um, white troops were uh, being allowed to go home, they were being retained. And so they were uh, uh, basically as enlisted men were retained to stay along the border, like I said, to protect the region from, you know, let's say... uh, yeah, from Native the, American incursions re, and re, or revamping of the Confederacy yeah, to come back over the southern border. Exactly, renegade white people. But uh, that one's a, for another day. I actually have something I'll tell you about that off air. Thank you very much for, for talking to us. Great little history lesson from Roseanne Bacha Garza with the chapter program at UTRGV talking about how we too are part of Juneteenth. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. It's an ongoing struggle, the older generations versus the new generations and how to act in the office. Joining us on 710 KURV, Valerie Sokolowski is a nationally recognized author, the author of Do It Right. So the rules of office etiquette kind of changing. So what are some of the, we, we've been hearing a lot from from baby boomers about, oh, this generation doesn't know how to work and this and this and that. It's Gen Z's turn. So what are they saying about baby boomers? <laughs> Complain, complain, complain on both sides. You know, I'm really tired of all the complaints because <laughs> here's the deal. <laughs> I, You know, it bothers me a lot when people, baby boomers, Gen Zs, I don't care what it is, when we are clumped into this entity and then discussed as an entity. Instead of thinking about individual people, you can't just clump people and say they are bad, they are this, they are that. Don't brand it. Let's talk about individual and uh, people. And the thing that it, <laughs> the thing that I think is so funny is that um, I have been working in the last, I'd say, five particular years doing workshops, leadership workshops with the Gen Zs and baby boomers in the same room. And I don't sense any of this. So we can talk about it, but I think we also have to give it some grace because it isn't everywhere like it's sort of piped up to be. I'm going to throw my co-host under the bus because there's like a, what, a 40-year generational gap between us? In your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one, of, one of the things, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not singling you out as I say this because I've worked, I've worked such, other jobs you're such a where I've been in this situation before. I'm 36. With- where uh, he's an old thirty six though one Lots of the of miles. one of the one of the pet peeves is and this is what Gen Z Gen Z is citing is that hey we're not your grandkids and if you have a problem with something techie don't come to us call it true what, what a bunch of whiners what, right now yeah, um, and I'm not singling you out Davis because Davis will ask me tech support stuff all the time but that's that's 
I'm, I'm being a friend when, when I'm helping them out with that. But for uh, the, the Gen Zers and the baby boomers, why, why, why do they say that? Uh, Valerie. <laughs> oh, you're asking me. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> she thought you were still after me. <laughs> Golly. <laughs> I thought you were really on a roll there. <laughs> well, well, you know, well after the program. So. <laughs> if everybody would focus on what's really important, which is the customer, we wouldn't be having all of these discussions. So I'll take it for both perspectives. Um, I had a panel on my podcast not so long ago, and it was all leaders of different kinds of companies. And I said to them as a group, I said, do you feel like you're being held hostage where the new, you know, the younger generations are getting their way, if you will? If they don't want to work at the office, are you giving in? Blah, 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 blah. And all four of them said, yeah, kind of. Because, and here's the reason in the other side of the coin, you drive down any street in the, on the highway in most cities and there will be, we need workers, come to work, jobs here, mm-hmm. and people aren't showing up to the jobs. So, you know, it isn't on one side or the other. It's kind of a mentality. And I'm not sure where that comes from or doesn't come from. But you've got to go back to people's values. What are the values that say, well, I'm not going to go back to work. I choose not to go back to work. So there you go. Figure it out, company. Uh, this is David. You know, there's that uh, side. Uh-huh. And then the other side? And then the other side is the, um, the, the baby boomers or some of the leaders of corporations that are much older. And they are saying, but you know what? We have an ROI. We have a, a budget that we have to uh, meet. We have to satisfy the customer. And therefore, it's called we need workers. Work says you get paid to do a job that you're gifted or talented in, and we're going to offer you this payment to come to work. Would you consider that? So, man, is it a different environment these days. Joining us on 710KURV, Valerie Sokolowski is a etiquette expert joining us now. Davis Franken, go ahead with your question. I know you're chomping at I the I have bit. a lot of questions. Um, <clears throat> are, uh, uh, are the people who are not filling the jobs, uh, uh, well... Oh, well, actually, about the workplace, not about the... Well, because um, if you don't go to work... interactions in the workplace. If you don't go to work, how do you get money to do stuff? Um and are, are the attitudes I mean I, I, it'd be good to have some ages attached to things like 25 year old and as opposed to a 50 year old or a 70 year old uh, I um, yeah, I'm, I'm older than most of the people here but most of the people here are radio DJs and <laughs> there doesn't yeah. seem to be any they just show up and go to work. I, I uh, if if I may, and uh, let, let me let me frame it like this. So Davey thing. and I were talking about was it Highland Park ISD? Yeah, Highland Park. Okay, in so they recently talked about uh, they're hiring up a new superintendent, but it's just such an expensive area to live that they're paying for a one point eight million dollar home or something like that for the, the home is valued at eight point. Well, the, they paid they one point eight million dollars tax title and license to live in Highland Park, one of the most expensive subdivisions of towns in the, in the, the world. The superintendent in question makes about 350, give or take, uh, 350,000 a year, more or less. And so we, uh, going to the struggle of remote work and people that want to come back into the office, a, a generational shift of you know younger people and older people. And one of the big things that they're talking about as we're having this discussion about why don't people want to come back to work anymore is hey uh-huh. the the commute's pretty bad you know I, I'm I'm driving an hour into work because the city's too expensive I got to find a place that's way far out from the from the city to to go in and the the job ain't paying me all that much and if I'm spending you know my uh, the the majority of my day if you think about it you know working for this guy and he he makes like one or two percent extra profit I'm not going to see any of that. This is what the younger generation is. We should book her again for tomorrow because we, we have a lot of questions. Here. I do have a lot. I'm of questions. sorry, Valerie. 
is, is it's it a the, rich let, topic. Let, let, oh, let, yeah. her, let her answer, uh, okay. uh, Davey. Yeah, talk. talk. No, Sorry. well, Danny, I'll talk. All right. <laughs> it's a rich topic. It really is. And I think the, uh, the point is we're so divisive in our country about so many things. I think it's time that we just kind of put on a different attitude and say, what is good for me as an individual (laughs) to get a paycheck and to feel good about what I am giving instead of all the, all the hype about the Gen Z's want this, they won't do this, they will do this, the corporations want this, they will do this. Let's just get back to civility and the honor of having a job. That's what I can't figure out. If people can stay home and not go to work and they can make it, good for them. I don't know very many people like that. Do you? I know a few. Only, only with inherited wealth. <laughs> but uh, exactly. How Trust do we get along? Babies. How do we get along better, Valerie? How can you? How can you help us get along better? All the generations. I think. Yeah, I really do think that it has to do with uh, values. And where do values come from? From your background, from what you learned when you grew up in whatever family you're in. A lot of uh, a lot of the workplace issues that are spawning selfishness. I wonder where that comes from. I don't know. But you just drive down even the highways and every, what about me? I call it the wham world, W-A-M. What about me? What about me? What about me? And I'm not laughing about it. You drive down major highways and who gives a darn about you? It's all about me. And if I want to fly over three lanes I'm going to try to fly over so you know where is this attitude coming well from it's coming I think a lot of it just deep down from who are you and how were you brought up and what values do you have because if you keep being all about me all about me one of these days you're going to hit a brick wall and it's not going to feel good. You just can't live that way all your life. I do, really don't think so. So are you saying we, we need like a daddy in the workplace? D- does, <laughs> does management need to come down more often? I just think we need to think about other people and not be so selfish. You're not wrong. Tell us, tell us real quickly. I, I got about 30 seconds here if you want to talk about Do It Right. Tell us about your book. Well, I want to tell you about my business because oh, go for, for 30 it. years I've had a leadership development firm and I specialize in helping leaders what? Do it right, which means lead with authenticity. Be a real person. Show your vulnerability. Relate to others. And then you're going to be a leader that other people want to follow. And let's face it, if you turn around and no one's following you, I don't think you can call yourself a leader. <laughs> well, you're exactly <laughs> right. ValerieandCompany.com. ValerieandCompany.com. Thanks a lot for Thank hanging you. out with us this afternoon, Valerie. Appreciate it. Valerie Sokoloski, etiquette expert. Check her out at ValerieandCompany.com. This is News Talk 710-KURV, your 956-Drive-Home. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. News Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news. On News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have a multiple In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. URV and KURV.com. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Back in 2020, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, declared uh, some emergency measures against COVID for the Lone Star State. And uh, last week was the end as Governor Abbott did not renew uh, any of those declarations, marking the end of an era. So for a quick retrospective, a look back at 2020 and, and comparing to 
the way things are now, Dr. Ivan Melendez, the Hidalgo County Health Authority, joins us now on 710 KURV. So let's let's go back to 2020 and when all this began. And uh, what, what re- let's uh, remind everybody what, what things were like back then. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having us on. Let's remember that April 21st was our first case in the Rio Grande Valley. Originally, it was thought that it was a travel trip uh, to uh, Las Vegas, and the other group was a travel trip to Italy. We had come home. We were waiting for our first cases because we had some in northern Texas. By then, I think it was March, around March 20th, around this date, that Governor Abbott had um, uh, declared that it was a COVID emergency um, because of um, the declaration uh, emergency. I guess administered for the state demanded that he uh, he would be the person directly responsible for directing any type of uh, emergency scenario, including a healthcare scenario. So in March, he said we have a national emer- we have a state emergency. Uh, the federal government had already declared it. Uh, our equivalent, Judge Richard Cortez, when we had our first case in April, then also uh, declared it being an emergency in our area. So we're looking at uh, March of 2020 and our first case in April, uh, and then the next following three years. I think we all can remember, but quite briefly, a couple of highlights. Uh, number one is. Um, we had the um, native or original uh, strain that was quite deadly. We were in all the uh, international press as being one of the worst places hit. We had a 5% mortality rate. That means that anyone who got it, 5% would die. Not, not people who went to the hospital, just anyone who got it. Around the world, it was around 1% to 3%. We were at 5 our community, like ours, roughly a million people, 1.2 million. We were losing 70 patients a day by the end of that summer. If you call, recall, we couldn't even bury our own folks because um, we had to wait a month at a, at a funeral place just to get it. We had to bring in freezers. The local funerals had to build uh, freezer rooms so we could hold the cadavers. Uh, it was a nightmare. We had, you had to die to get a bed. Someone had to die to get a bed inside the hospital. People were being coded in ambulances outside. Our 1,200 hospital bed census, we have 2,000, but we only have about 1,200 that are we able to staff fully. We're at over 100% of all of our beds in the hospital were purely COVID. And we were, for the first year, the first nine months, in a, in a night of the living dead horror scenario that no one had ever envisioned. As the virus began to kill off a lot of hosts, humans, it started to mutate in a way that was still deadly, but not as deadly because the virus's uh, objective is not to kill the host, but to reproduce. And so if you kill all your hosts, there's nothing to reproduce on like the Ebola, which is, that is why it has not spread as widely. And so as the virus changed, we all remember that we went to alpha and uh, delta strains was a very big one, Omicron strains, Omicron AB. And as the years went by, what we saw with that uh, Fortunately, the mutations were much less deadly and that the, uh, unfortunately, the capacity to infect was a lot higher but less deadly. So today, as opposed to having 70 people die a day, now uh, we average about one person a week. Some weeks, like two weeks ago, we had four people die. Uh, Another week, maybe we have one, but we average about one person a week that's still dying instead of 70 a day. Um, In addition to that, our hospital beds for COVID are less than 5%. We're about 2%. Let's remember that we had 1,200 people in the hospital with COVID. Uh, today, we're averaging between 19 to 22. We peaked at 30 last week. And we know that the current strain is dramatically and significantly less lethal. In that process, I don't have to remind everyone, we went through the vaccine, the closing down of businesses and schools and mandates, and it became politicized. And in fact, the main reason why Governor Abbott continued to renew the declaration that it was an emergency, even though we, knew, we know that the pandemic is over, not the problem, but the pandemic is over for quite some time, was because this was the only legal way that he could maintain authority as the director of the emergency response team so that local governments could not go against um, his declarations. In other words, if the local health authority like myself said we should close down the schools, uh, we, I no longer had that authority to do so. He usurped that. 
So in order to maintain businesses open, no mask mandates, going back to school, no vaccination mandates, this declaration was in place until Monday when another form of legislation passed where now that authority uh, lies with the state. And therefore, the emergency declaration mandate was no longer necessary. So if you will, it was a legal way for the state government to uh, supersede whatever any local government thought was best. And so now we're in the scenario, the legal scenario, where uh, um, uh, besides the no mask mandate, no vaccines, businesses open, uh, there was also attachments, as, as you all well know, about how the uh, parents decide if a child can move on to the next year, how you can't teach this, you can't do that. So it was a very large encompassing bill that included the loss of the declaration of the COVID emergency. And that's more or less where we are uh, in reference to why it was uh, declared uh, only on Monday. We all know that it hasn't been emergency. And just very briefly, uh, yes, go ahead. Dr. Uh, Ivan Melendez is the Hidalgo County Health Authority joining us on 710-KURV. We're taking a a look back at the way things were during COVID uh, real briefly. And then now we're talking about how things are now. Uh, I know there's a, I know the treatment's a lot different. The virus is a lot different. And uh, has have we learned anything? And I'll and I'll tell you a story. I mean, we have a handful of mask wearers out there, which is fine. You can do whatever you want. But I was at a I was at a at a movie theater, and we were the first viewing of the day. And the let me just put it this way: the cleaning practices weren't exactly up to par. <laughs> Our seats were covered in in uh, wrappers and and popcorn, and it wasn't nearly as clean as it was during uh, COVID. Yes, well, we have learned a lot, and, 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 and let me tell you what we learned. But before so, let me just remind people, the pandemic is over, the strain is much less lethal, but we still have 768 million cases in the world of COVID that occurred. That's almost one-eighth of the entire population. In the United States, we had 109 million people. We have a population around 300 million. And deaths in the world, we've already had 7 million people die. U.S. alone is responsible for 1.1 million people. And today, today, this week, we're still averaging around 550 people that die every single day around the world from COVID. So to say that COVID is over, obviously, it's not true. We had 32 patients in the hospital last uh, week, and today we have 19 that are directly attributed to COVID. So the problem continues to exist. What did we learn? Well, I think you guys who are students of human nature, have have understood and seen over and over and over that human beings, we tend to forget things. We get to forget thing, how bad things were, and we defer to things weren't that bad, and now they're better. And so if we weren't able to forget that one day we're going to die, I think everyone would just sit at home and, and party, because <laughs> why work if we're going to die anyway? And so I think we've been able to survive because we're able to put that in the back of our mind. And we have forgotten how bad COVID was. And so that's why still, when we see people wear masks, now most people say, well, that's kind of peculiar. But remember that a lot of these folks are immunosuppressed and or they've had just tremendous post-traumatic experiences from the deaths and the suffering that they've gone through with people uh, with COVID. And what did we learn? Well, what we learned was number one, we, our health as a community is only as good as our neighbor's health. Before, if I was thin, if I had a good job, if I had good health care insurance, if my family was okay, well, that's great. It's not my problem. But during COVID, we learned that you may be in the best shape, best experience, but if your neighbor gets it, then you're going to get sick too. So we learned that we're responsible to a certain extent for making sure that everyone in our community has a capacity in one way or the other to try to maximize their baseline state of health because the reason people die and the reason people continue to die is directly related to how healthy they are in general. Very few people, even today, if you're 55 years old and you're a male and you have chest pain and you do not have a family history of diabetes or hypertension, the chance of that chest pain being due to your heart is less than 5%. Yet, if you go to the emergency department with chest pain, you're 55, you're going to spend $30,000 on a chest pain workup. And so what we learned is that the baseline state of health of the community is directly related to how you're going to do 
not only in infections, but in healthcare in general. So instead of spending our monies and our resources on sexy things like liver transplants, kidney transplants, and there is a, there is room for that, there is a place for that, we need to redirect a lot of our funds into the primary healthcare care prevention and treatment of things that are not so sexy, like obesity and hypertension and diabetes. So we learn to prioritize uh, on basic health, getting our people in a good state of health. Number two, we learn that unless you collaborate, that is public, private, governmental, uh, education, with all these highly competitive doctors and hospitals and healthcare systems, we all came together. And that was a great leadership of Dr. Uh, excuse me, of Judge uh, Richard Cortez, that he was able to lead uh, and uh, help people collaborate at all levels. We had never done that before in the 37 years that I've been practicing medicine. I never saw such cooperation with all the different competitive healthcare uh, delivery systems. So we had to, one, we had to cooperate and we had to, to collaborate. Number two, we had to redirect our, our, our resources toward uh, preventive maintenance and identifying what keeps our community uh, at health. And so I think those are the two biggest learning tools. Of course, the problem has changed. The virus is different, but so are we. Our medications, although we cannot cure it, are a little bit more helpful. We know, regardless of what people tell you, from a scientific, mathematical perspective, that the answer was not early intubation. The answer was not steroids unless you were in the hospital. Certainly, the answer wasn't azithromycin ivermectin. Now, most people in mainstream science look back and they say, yeah, yeah, that certainly wasn't ivermectin and azithromax. And so we learned a lot. I'd like for the public just to remember one thing. When they think, you know, these people keep changing their stories, they keep, they kept changing their mind over the last, well, of course, when the world, when the, when the world thought that the globe was flat and it learned that it wasn't, of course you change. We used to think that there were four planets and then we learned that there was eight and then we thought there was nine and now we know that there's eight. And so as new science come in and science just means data, of course we have to change recommendations because our fund of knowledge increases. We had to evolve our habits and our solutions to the problem as it was evolving. And that was a great way to put that, Dr. Ivan. Appreciate your time here today. As Thank usual, you. Dr. Ivan Melendez, the Hidalgo County Health Authority, joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Start your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day. And special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, good morning, guys. Well, let's now enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. We now head to the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Why? Because we're curious to know, how does polling work? You always hear about polls. Everybody's got a poll, right? But you never hear from people that are polling. And there's probably a reason for that, because it's getting harder to do. Uh, joining us is uh, Dr. James Hansen from uh, the, as aforementioned, Texas Politics Project at UT Austin on uh, 710KURV. And uh, so how does, how does polling work and why is it getting harder? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the, the bad news first, I think. Uh, and it's good to <laughs> talk to you guys again in terms of why is it getting harder? I mean, I, I think most of us can probably figure out why it's getting harder. Um, you know, polling was, you know, really reach its heyday and, and developed based on using landline phones. We all know from personal experience, almost nobody uses a landline phone anymore. And so that has caused, you know, all kinds of, you know, adjustments among pollsters. Now, why is that matter? Because for, you know, uh, public opinion polling to be effect, you know, to be accurate and effective, what we need to do is get a good random sample that is representative in, uh, of an underlying population that we are trying to poll. So 
if you randomly choose a bunch of people and call them, you have to have some degree of faith that you're getting pretty close to an approximation of what the population looks like. Um, so in the wake of that, there have been all kinds of adjustments and, and there have been problems along the way um, in, in, in making those adjustments. So we use cell phones, we use the internet, um, and, and frankly, it's kind of the wild west out there in terms <laughs> of people trying to use different ways of reaching people in a way that enables you to get pretty close to a, a random sample. And we have all kinds of means of adjusting that sample in the data. But all of those things have meant that it, it's difficult. And when we call people on the phone, it's harder and harder to get people to respond. Um, you know, in the heydays of polling, if you made, uh, say, 10 calls, you could count on, you know, somewhere between, you know, two and four people answering and completing your survey. Now that is way, you know, less than one person out of 10 as we look at response rates plummeting. And those are all problems. Those are all technical problems. And then you have the political problem that you have a lot of people that have become both skeptical of polling and skeptical of the groups and institutions that might be conducting polls. So, you know, a lot of people think that polling is part of a, you know, quote unquote rigged system. And some of that is the fault of how people have used polls because people are using polls sometimes for, you know, relatively nefarious, uh, non-professionally approved ways. No. So that's an yeah, some, some pollsters have gone there. Some pollsters have gone public with that. Uh, as as far as as far as I know, about ten years ago, somebody had just come out and said, "Yeah, I can make anybody say anything while I'm while I'm asking them these questions to make a poll look like it's officially saying one thing while I'm really talking about another thing." Joining us on seven ten KURV from the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin is Dr. James Henson. Davis, go ahead with your question. For example, this comes to mind, so I got to get it off my chest. Uh, Houston School <laughs> District, I think, has like 70, 70 some odd different languages that they have to deal with right. or that the kids are speaking. Let's cut. We could cut it in half and it's still a, just a hunk. Of, and if you go up to uh, Dallas area, lots and lots of South Asians. Now, I would assume uh, that different ethnic groups or different people from different countries respond differently to people calling their house and wanting to know how they're going to vote. Um, have you all thought of that? Does that come up in conversation? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, and there, I think there, there are two issues embedded in that. I mean, one, you kind of, I think you get at directly is, you know, a kind of cultural or, you know, if you will, experiential issue that maybe oh, yeah. particularly if I am a recent immigrant from say an authoritarian country, I am not very you know, I'm, you know, I'm probably not very comfortable talking about politics with a stranger over the phone. <laughs> I might not be comfortable talking about politics with people I know. And so that is one thing that, you know, we, we come up, you know, we, we confront to some degree. And then the other, of course, is language. Um, you know, and there yeah. are, you know, different, you know, language is a different obstacle. I mean, in Texas, as long as I've been doing this, we don't do a poll that's statewide in any, in any reasonable sense or has any geographical kind of scope without a version in Spanish. Yeah. Um, now I think with all of this, the, you know, one of the things that I think people should keep in mind from the, the perspective of people doing polls is that you do polls with a purpose. So for a lot of the work we do, we are looking at registered voters. And in that sense, um, language is, it, we have to be conscious of language, but it's not as much of a barrier if we are saying we are trying to look at what the electorate thinks, because much, if not all of the electorate remains, you know, um, um, at least at a baseline conversant in English, or at least functional in English. Now, if you want, if you're trying to find out what all adults in Texas think, well, then, you know, you know, regardless of citizenship or regardless of voter registration yeah. status, well, then those those language barriers are very important. And you're right. They are a real obstacle and they're an obstacle and a real, um, 
you know, practical sense that everyone can relate to because, you know, poll translation doesn't come for free. Like anything, like everything else, <laughs> so if you have to, you know, you know if, if you have to field a poll and you need to have, you know, six, eight, ten languages, you know, to put mm-hmm. that poll in the field, you got to pay for all those translations. And it's pretty, you know, it's pretty rare that anybody can do that all themselves. You think joining you think- us on 710 KURV is Dr. James Henson at the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Davey, go ahead. And then I got a follow up after you. Well, I was going to be kind of cute. Like, does it cost more to get Mandarin translated? Because that's one of the hardest languages in the world. But I withdraw that joke. So does, do it, s- take, does it take longer to – was that your question? I'm sorry. Dave. No, no. Uh, do, do you see a day when you won't be able – polling will not be able to be done re- uh, uh, reliably? You know, I honestly don't. Um, you know, one of the things that we've seen, I mean, I think there is – understandably, and I'm, you know, know, how can I put this? I'm cool with it. I mean, I understand that people have questions about it. And I think about the practice, and I think that's good, and it's healthy. And, you know, it helps us all, you know, those of us that do this kind of work at all, um, you know, on our toes about not embarrassing ourselves individually, and making sure that we support keeping professional standards up to date. But I think, yeah. You know, a lot of what we're seeing right now uh, in terms of the adjustment to this shift out of phone polling will continue. I mean, you know, there are technical and statistical ways that we get better at and and, and the, the data that are, that are available become very different um, that allow us to adjust and continue to try to make these estimates. And that's ultimately what polling is. And everybody should remember that. And I, And I say that in all humility, you know, we are not, you know, we are, we are delivering estimates of public attitudes when we deliver a polling result or when we do survey research. You know, it's interesting though, Dr. Henson, because it's kind of like, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, It's interesting though, because everybody's got an opinion and they're very, um, they're very adamant to let you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what they think about certain topics. So it's it's fascinating that this is becoming a, a problem in that way just because of the means of the technology and the and the mediums that we're using to communicate with each other. But does that does that I know that makes your job harder, but does that take uh does it makes this whole process does it make it significantly longer in trying to sort out all the data uh, a, a, after you're trying to acquire these pools and sort them out and figure out the responses and then uh, you you dress them up so nicely over at the website. Do, is polling taking longer now, and is there a, a larger margin for error because of all these new things? Well, what I would say is this: I mean, I would say that data collection probably, on average, takes a little longer than it used to. But that's also, you know, to some degree, a, you know, a function of cost. Um, you know, how rapidly you can contact yeah. people and how rapidly you can intake the data. You know, I, I think it maybe takes a little bit longer as we get more careful and, you know, we're all a little more, you know, I I think, you know, I think we're all, you know, those of us that try to do this conscientiously, a little more careful about how long we take to look at the data and to think about what we're getting and to think about how we're going to present it to the public in a way that is that is credible and, and frankly helpful. I mean, at least for you know, someone like me, I mean, I, we do some kind of polling on the side that is not public, but most of what we do is for a public audience, and we're mindful of it being, uh, you know, comprehensible and helpful to people in the way that we do it. But, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, it, this is another technology issue. I mean, I think that, you know, it doesn't take longer necessarily because the tools that we have both in terms of software and in terms of um, how we sort of propagate the information have gotten better. So some things get harder and some things get easier. Like a lot of things, you know, like a lot of things in life. Have you, have you considered offering gift cards at (laughs) Chick-fil-A? To get them to reply? (laughs) Well, look, we, we have not, but, but I'll tell you this. I mean, look, it's very common, particularly if you're doing kind of commercial and marketing polling, 
to, to use incentives, you know, oh, yeah. to, to tell people, look, if you'll, you know, I'm sure you guys have seen this. If you'll do this, we'll put your name in a drawing for a hundred dollar Amazon card. Yeah. For example, that's, that's very common. And, you know, um, you know, the Nielsen company still sends out, you know, sends you a, uses a very old technique. They send you an invitation to do a poll via mail with a dollar in it. And they say they'll send you $5 if you complete it and send it back. And I know somebody yeah, I thought, that did this very recently and then, you know, and it still works. <laughs> I thought a hundred dollars was a little generous for, for what you were mentioning. $5 is about my speed. I'd be like, man, you know, five, $10 at Chick-fil-A, you know, <laughs> that's what I would. Well, do. you know, a given a, you know, look, Nielsen is a big company and you know, they're, they're, you know, important in the, in the television entertainment industry. There's no lack of money flowing around there. So, you know, a buck or, you know, you know, in, in the example, I just used $6 for a completed interview, you know, not too bad. Hey, well, well, thanks Dr. a lot Henson, for thank uh, you. spending some time with us and, and breaking it all down. That's Dr. James Henson at uh, University of Texas at Austin, the Texas Politics Project, joining us on Newstock 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on Newstalk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands, your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURV. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV.